Welcome to Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast. Learn firsthand from business owners who built successful ABA businesses. Utilize proven techniques and strategies to help your practice thrive. This is Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast with Jonathan Mueller. Dr. Danny Openden became president and CEO of the Southwest Autism Research and Resource Center, SARC, in July 2013, but he's been with the organization since 2007. He earned his doctorate in special education, disability, and risk studies at UC Santa Barbara. The Phoenix Business Journal in 2011 named Dr. Openden one of Phoenix's 40 under 40 up-and-coming community leaders. He and his wife, Erica, have two sons. And Danny, welcome to the pod. Hey, thanks. Good to be here, Jonathan. Always, always good to hang with you, man. <laughs> right back at you, brother. And so I'm going to start yeah. kind of out of left field, literally out of left field, because one of the first times, four or five or six, I can't remember. It was at one of Sark's like fundraising events. I will never forget. Um, uh, like you talked about your son's high socks look because he's a baseball player and he plays on a baseball team. I just like totally connected because I love the high socks look too, man. And, and it was something we kind of connected on. And, uh, you know, it was just this unique combination of, uh, of old school and um, I don't know, just like genuineness. What, what inspired your son to go high socks? Yeah, so I think that was at a uh, at a Sark breakfast. We talked about my younger son who had the high socks, and I think you know a couple of things. One is as a family, that's always been our preferred look. We, you know, it looks cool. It's got that old school, new school mix, and it just looks cool. If I if you were going to ask my younger son at the time, who's Cody, he'd probably tell you he was wearing that not because it was what we thought was cool, but his older brother played baseball, mm. and uh, that's Grady. And Grady's team is a really, really great competitive baseball team. They're all 13 now. They play for a team called the Scottsdale Dirtbags, and uh, <laughs> which is a great name to have a couple boys play for right. the Scottsdale Dirtbags. And uh, their team is completely committed to wearing knickers and high socks. And, uh, and they've done it so well that um, they now have matching socks as part of the uniform. So we'll get what uniform they're playing with every day and which socks to wear with that uniform. And they all wear the same one because they all wear it that way. Um, but we have one recent challenge, Jonathan, and that is, you know, they're 13. They're growing a lot. And my son uh, is growing constantly. And uh, so he's now wearing full length pants because he'd be he'd be on mm. the pitching mound and every pitch he'd have to like pull his knickers down <laughs> back over his knees because you know, we buy him a pair of pants and a month later, they're too small. So he just said, forget it. I'm wearing full length pants. The biggest problem we have now is we can see his ankles. But uh, uh, that's kind of how we got there. My younger son's still wearing the high sock look. But. That's amazing. I love it. Well, best of luck to your sons and to the Scottsdale Dirtbags. Uh, what, what an amazing name. Yeah. It sounds like a great team unity. I, you know, so I, uh, yeah. uh, Danny, I, I came across one of your quotes. I think it was when you worked maybe as a paraprofessional your senior year of college um, with, uh, with a girl with autism. And the quote was this, the experience led me to believe that kids with autism can be educated in the same environments as anybody else and integrated with the rest of the community. Um, and then I'm gonna read Sark's vision as well. Um, and Sark's vision is people with autism meaningfully integrated into inclusive communities. I'll be honest, Danny. Like, so, okay, I'm totally coming clean. I talk about Autism Ready World, and I, I've talked about it for a few years. I blatantly stole that <laughs> from you and, you know, <laughs> like Sark's vision because it's just, it, it, that feels so important. So, so, so my question is, um, like, what, what does sort of that, 
um, uh, uh, you know, integrated into inclusive communities. What does that mean to you? And maybe from two contexts, one, like coming back to participating on a little league baseball team. And two, I know Mesa, Arizona, a town very close to you, um, is, uh, is certified, was the first autism certified city in the world. So, okay, so you asked a lot. So let me try to cover everything you, you, you went with there. So, so let me start back with that paraprofessional. Yeah, that was, that was my first real job in autism, right? I was a one-to-one aide for a second grade girl. Her name was Alexis in, uh, in a second grade classroom. And my job was to transfer independence to her and control to the teacher. So I tell people a lot of times when we work in paraprofessionals, your job is to do so good that you lose your job. But don't worry, there's plenty of other people with autism that are going to need your support. Your job is to make yourself irrelevant. And, and I'm really proud of the fact that that's exactly what we achieved over the course of that year. I mean, I remember early in the year, I was, was with her, I was supporting her, I was out on the playground, I was helping, you know. And by the end of the school year, I was sitting in the back of the classroom reading a book because she had, you know, completely independent in that classroom and the teacher had control and I didn't need to be there. In fact, I was probably there more for the other kids than I was for her by the end of that school year. And, and like you said, that, that really sort of showed me like what's really possible, right? When you combine good community mm-hmm. and good skill development and people with autism, you really can get people included uh, in, into, into our community. And so, you know, as you talk about my vision, I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a couple things and I want to kind of break that down for you. So the first of all, how do we come up with that vision? We were really struggling with this. And I think, I think Sark, we, we already knew what our vision was. We hadn't articulated it. We couldn't come mm-hmm. up with a way to de- describe it. But as soon as we hit it, everyone's like, that's it. And we got there by asking ourselves one very simple question, right? We said, you know, we struggle with how to articulate it, but let's ask this question. The question was, what would the world look like if Sark could achieve all of its goals? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that question became our vision. People with autism meaningfully integrated into inclusive communities. And why I love that vision for us is one, it answers that important question. Two, it's short and concise Mm -hmm. and there is no fluff in there. Every word has meaning. And then to kind of break it down, so people with autism, really meaning that we're not just talking about little kids, we're talking about the entire lifespan. Mm -hmm. Little, little kids through adulthood, uh, looking across the entire autism. People with autism, not just children with autism. Meaningfully integrated, Meaning that kind of like that little girl that I talked to you about uh, being integrated into her second grade classroom. We didn't just put her in there and put her in the classroom and say, you know, she's included. We're done. We needed to make sure she was meaningfully a part of that classroom. Same thing if we're talking about an adult with autism and we get them a Mm -hmm. job. You can't just have that job and they're off by themselves doing something meaningless. They need to be paid a competitive wage. They need to be doing meaningful work. And they need to be meaningfully integrated into the culture of that company, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just integrated, it's meaningfully integrated. It's an important word. And then into inclusive communities. And a lot of times I I talk about the yin and yang of SARC, right? I think that SARC focuses equally on improving and changing the behaviors and skills of people with autism Mm. as we do improving and changing the behaviors and skills of the communities in which they live. If we're really talking about good outcomes for people with autism, you can't focus on one side and the other. You can't just focus on people with autism and not change the community. They'll never get far enough to building that community. And if you only focus on the community and say, you all you need to change, without change, helping people with autism change and improve their skills, they're just not going to be integrated nearly as well. And so, you know, again, all of those pieces have meaning to us. The inclusion piece goes back to my time being in that classroom. We know what's really possible. And, and I think part of what Sark's working on now is 
we've built a great, supportive, inclusive community right here in Phoenix. Uh, we've been called, Phoenix has been called the most autism-friendly city in the world in 2016 mm. because of a lot of the work that Sark and others have done right here. We need to expand that. We need more supportive, inclusive communities. And Mesa, to get into your question, I think is a great start. And by the way, you know, we need advocates too, right? So mm-hmm. uh, uh, visit Mesa's CEO's guy named Mark Garcia. He's an incredible guy. He's a parent of a child with autism. He knows mm-hmm. how important this community piece is. And he really pursued this certification to become the first certified autism city. But we got to go even further than that. It can't just be about, you know, training and having something on the wall. You know, building culture into all these businesses that are welcoming for people with autism and supportive is critical. There's another group we work with called PALS that I love. Uh, their, their motto is everyone gets to go. And so they're focusing less on the training and the certification side. And really, they're building visual stories and online videos. And I, I assume someday VR to help mm. people know what it is that they're going to get before they walk into some of those settings. we got to combine all of this stuff together. And I think on some level, we need to help our community not think just in terms of special autism days where it's only open for people with autism. Right. And right. to be thinking constantly about how do we do business in a way that people with autism are included every single day. Mm. Daddy, this is so, what's so deeply insightful to me about what you described is that yin and the yang. I think most ABA providers or autism service providers think about the yin, right? Hey, I am working on skills and behaviors, you know, with this, this, this population that I'm honored to work with without thinking like, what do I need to do? What does my organization need to do? And what does our world need to do to adapt? And I think that's super powerful, right? It's the same way, thing with leadership, right? We, we don't just like lead others and shape their but We all constantly have to be looking at ourselves. And so I, I, I love how you describe it. And one of the well, things I, I want to I'll, oh, I'll yeah. say, just going back to, oh, I was just saying, just going back to, to your love of the, the knickers where you saw that at the Sark breakfast, which we'll have this month as well. Um, but, you know, just, just going back to that for a second, that, that community breakfast usually has somewhere between, you know, 1,200 and 1,800 people that show up for that breakfast. The high majority of them have no personal connection to autism at all. Mm-hmm. These are business leaders, they're educators, they're politicians, they're people in our community. And so while this is our biggest fundraiser of the year, it is our biggest friend raiser of the year. And what mm-hmm. we're really doing is helping people that have no personal connection to autism begin to care about including and integrating people with autism in our community. I would say that The Breakfast has done about as much about raising money for people with autism to support them as it has about building community around people with autism. Mm, powerful. So uh, let's let's go down that path. So uh, this month of April is Autism Awareness Acceptance Month. Uh, and as I understand it, SARC is gonna be doing an, their in-person fundraiser uh, or, or sorry, the fundraiser in person for the first time in two years through COVID. Yeah. T- tell me more about kind of how you all are uh, 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 celebrating and honoring this month. Yeah, well, one is we're hoping there's not a big variant that's going to have to uh, pivot back to virtual right. because we are very excited to be back on stage. We're very excited to be back in front of our community. And we're very excited that it's our 25th anniversary, right? We get to kind of celebrate that with a return to the stage. Uh, the Sark Breakfast is, to me, like no other nonprofit event that's out there. Um, you, if you're in the audience, you could hear a pin drop in the room because people are so engaged with what's happening on stage. And our job is to make you care so much about the work that we're doing, but you can't help but donate to the cause and support what we're mm-hmm. doing. 
And even if you're supporting from a very little to a very high amount, the more important piece is that you're walking away. How can you help support and build more inclusive community wherever you live, wherever you work, whatever places you go for fun? Those are all ways that we can influence and impact our community. So it's our 25th anniversary and our 24th annual community breakfast. Mm, you know, and I've got to say, kind listeners, the first one I went to, I think was 2018. And uh, Danny is right. There's not a dry eye in the house. There's not a dry eye with me. I mean, it's that level of power. And that idea, you use this term friend raising. So true, right? Fundraising is at, at the end of the day, like all about relationships. So I want to talk, let's put a pin in that. I'm going to come back to it. But, but one thing sure. I want, like, uh, so you're a movie star, man. No, like legitimate straight up. Um, and, you know, and, and listeners, if you haven't seen the movie in a different key, the story of autism or read the book, I, I mean, drop everything you're doing and go find a way to watch the movie and read the book. Um, it is so powerful. Um, but, uh, and Danny is, and Sark are featured in the movie. But Danny, one scene in the movie, there are two kiddos, I think from Sark, um, and one with autism and one is typically developing. And it, it's this amazing feel-good story, but it's not in the traditional way of, oh, here's a typically developing peer helping a kiddo with autism. Can you share that story? Absolutely. So uh, I, I'm, I'm right with you, Jonathan, in a different key, amazing movie and film, and not just because we have a small piece of that. But, um, but I will tell you, this is exciting. This is sort of like hot off the press. I'm allowed to share this now. But uh, PBS just picked up the rights on this film, and it's going to be out publicly in September. So yes, you can't find a way to see it now, which is a great way to do it. It'll be available uh, essentially across, across the country, maybe the world, to be able to see on PBS. And really, it's a documentary about the first person ever diagnosed with autism. His name is Donald Triplett. He's now in his upper 80s. He lives in Forest, uh, Mississippi. He has a great life, and there's this amazing supportive community around him. And, you know, one of the things we were thinking about, I, I think the producers sort of set out to say, you know, we, we need to figure out what they're doing so well here in Forest, Mississippi, bottle it and put it in other places. And the closest that they had found is what we're doing here in Phoenix in terms of building community. But one of the points that we were trying to, to make for them is that, you know, look, Forest is a great community. There's no question. You see this movie, you're like, these people are incredible the way that they care about this now old man with autism. Mm -hmm. But the question that we also asked was, would Forest Mississippi be as supportive and inclusive if it is, if you took Donald Triplett out of that community? Mm. And so I think we have to start to think about this, like what are the contributions that people with autism are making to the communities in which they live, right? We think all the time about what we, we need to do for them. What about what they're doing and contributing for us? And that's the story we told at the end. So we had two kids uh, named Benny and Jensen. We affectionately call them Benson. And uh, they, met in our, uh, they met in our inclusive preschool. Benny does not have autism. Jensen does have autism. And they met, they became best of friends, they did birthday parties and sleepovers. I mean, these kids were about as close as two preschoolers you can get. And then they went to kindergarten. And they went to kindergarten, they went to separate kindergarten. So I think everybody, are these guys still gonna be real close? And, uh, and one day, uh, Benny's mom, her name is Ari, and she, he, Benny had a younger brother in our school, and so Ari was at Sark, and she says, she says, oh my God, Danny, you gotta see this letter that I found in the, at the uh, bottom of Benny's backpack. And it was all crinkled up and it was right after Thanksgiving. So it was very one of these like I'm thankful for letters. And the entire letter that, you know, Benny had filled in the blank, you know, was 
you know, all about his friend Jensen. And he was saying, dear Jensen, and, you know, you made me feel happy when I was scared and I didn't know these kids and you're a great friend and I'm grateful for you and, you know, you've really helped me. And, you know, you get to the bottom of this letter and, and you're thinking to yourself, this has got to be the kid with autism that wrote this letter mm -hmm. thanking his typically developing peer. It was the other way around. This was a kid with, that was typically developing, finding such value and contribution in a child with autism. And that's really, really special. And part of the reason that In A Different Key wanted to feature the SART Community School is they believe that the way to build community is you got to start young and that SARC is doing that within our preschool and that some of the evidence of that is this story between uh, of Benson, of Benny really yeah. valuing the contributions that his friend with autism was giving him. We can build community around people with autism and build better communities at all. And if we start young by that, when we don't have to say, hey, half of you have autism and half of you don't, you're just in one class, uh, you really get these incredible outcomes, value and contributions on both ends. Eddie, that, that's so well retold. And that brings me right back to, I, mean, I was in, in the movie when that letter was being read, like I and every, every other member of the audience is literally weeping because of the power of what you described of have it like it, this is it's the other way around right and this is where our world is going and that's why i appreciate your leadership and sark making this uh making this happen Absolutely. and bring this vision to life i it, it, you know like speaking of movie stars and public speaking like i, I think i as it, tell me if this is true fact check me but like you took acting lessons as a kid and and you even started some tv roles um and 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 You've credited some of that toward, um, you know, to uh, for for your public speaking career. Um, so I, I'd love for you to share. Uh, and you are a phenomenal public speaker. So listeners, if you can't tell, I've, I've been fortunate to see Danny a number of times in action. But what's the, what's the most important thing you've learned from acting that's helped your public speaking? Yeah, so first of all, I need to tell you that I did a lot of little small parts in shows because my mom was a casting director and... In, uh, in Hollywood at the time. So I got all these great little gigs and then like I hit puberty and my career was over. So like 13, oh, no. I was done. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I took acting classes uh, uh, along the way and that's, that's true. I'll give you two answers to your question. Um, one has less to do with public speaking and actually more to do with clinical work in autism, mm. quite frankly. And I learned it from a mom of a child with autism that I worked with early on in my career. Um, and, uh, and she came from the entertainment industry too. And, and she said to me, you know, the PRT, the pivotal response treatment, which is the behavior analytic approach that we take primarily at SARC. She said, you know, it's a lot like improv, right? And I don't know if you've mm. ever watched, uh, mm -hmm. whose line is it anyway? Oh, you know, absolutely. Kind of improv class. But the number one rule. Yeah. Number one rule of improv. If you go back and watch whose lines anyways, you can never say no. It's always yes. Mm. There's even a game in improv called yes. And. And the idea is you got to watch the other person, you got to listen to the other person, and you have to build on them. You can never say no to their idea. You mm. can only say yes and move it forward. And I think a lot of times the way we approach autism with PRT is about following the child's lead, building instruction around their interest and what they're motivated by. And to do that, you can't have your own plan and always follow what you want to do. You've got to say yes and to yeah. people with autism and build instruction around their interest and motivation. Acting and improv taught me that. And the only other thing I'd say, you know, in terms of public speaking, I think it just taught me to be comfortable on stage, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I was never a very good actor, right? I, you know, I was, it was the nepotism that got me onto TV shows, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. But, um, you know, I was never a really great actor, 
But I think it, you know, the, the skills of acting just got you comfortable being up in front of people. And I think uh, being on stage or acting or presenting, it's like anything else. The more you do it, the more comfortable you get. And I think if you're in acting classes and doing that a lot, you just, the more you do it, the more you feel comfortable being on stage in front of people. Hmm. Words of wisdom. I, can I just say I'm very appreciative that puberty killed your acting career so that the world could have you as CEO <laughs> and, and, and leader of SARC and doing what you do for, for kids with autism. Well, I mean, you ended up tacking, um, you yes. know, as, in, in your in your in your career, education career um, and, uh, you know, and got your Ph.D. Um, and I, I'd love to just learn a little bit more um, uh, about sort of why you chose that and, and how it's helped you in your in your roles and in your career. Because I know many ABA business owners, our listeners, ask themselves that question at some point in their career journey, like, should I get my PhD? What would you tell them? Yeah, so um, so I, I did my bachelor's, master's and PhD all at UC Santa Barbara, uh, uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. If you haven't been to Santa Barbara before, it's a great place to go and a very terrible place to leave. Uh, nobody ever wants to leave. And so I, I joke with people and say, I never was that really interested in autism. I just didn't want to leave Santa Barbara. So I just kept signing up for more school. Um, but the truth of the matter is, you know, I got involved my junior year as a, or my senior year, as I said, working in that classroom. But I worked under my mentors were Bob and Lynn Cagle. Mm -hmm. And Bob and Lynn Cagle are very famous for their research in autism. Uh, they are most famous for developing pivotal response treatment. And I got in as a research assistant with them my junior year, did that job my senior year. And then somewhere along my senior year, I was in Lynn Cagle's office and, and she said to me, you know, I, I know I really know you want to go into teaching, right? And I know that that's, and you'd be a great teacher. And that's mm. partly why I was working in that classroom. I thought that was my career path. And she said to me, she goes, you know, you could really have a bigger impact if you went on to get your PhD. Mm. And that's what really sold me, right? Lynn saying that to me. And, and, um, and I find that I still do a lot of teaching just in a different realm. I'm not in a classroom mm -hmm. every day, but I think a big part of my life and what motivates me is teaching others, helping others, whether they're kids with autism or the staff we work with or our leadership team or our board of directors or our community. But when Lynn said that about impact, what I've noticed is that every role that I've had, I came to Sark as the clinical director and you know, to give up gave, you know, working directly with kids. Why? I wanted to make more impact. I became CEO. It was like, okay, now we've got a great clinical team. They're actually better than me now. Let me help make a bigger impact. So I think it was always driven by impact more mm. than anything else. And I owe Lynn Cagle a lot for that, for, uh, for, for uh, influencing that direction. In terms of your question about what should people be thinking about, here's the biggest thing that I would say. Um, a PhD, I, just as a caution, is a research degree. If you're not really interested in research, you think this is just, you know, a great degree or you're primarily focused on being a clinician um, and don't really have as much passion around research. This is not the degree for you. There are PsyDs, there are EDDs, there are other ways to go and still become a doctor, if you will. PhD is going to be about uh, really delving into and understanding research, how to integrate research, how to respond and talk about and communicate research and how to do your own original research. ABA practice owners, are billing and insurance issues getting you down? Well, let me tell you, Element RCM is your answer. Element provides world-class revenue cycle management services, contracting, credentialing, authorizations, billing, and more. Element's your partner, so you can focus on what you love to do, providing the highest quality services to your families and clients. Element's a preferred partner 
of the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence, and its founders have nearly 20 years of experience owning and operating successful ABA organizations. They understand you. They know that every dollar counts, that integrity is everything. Element works with any practice management system. And Element's not a vendor, they're your partner. So find out more and take a free revenue cycle assessment at elementrcm.ai. way for most PhDs is to become a scientific investigator. Now, I might not have followed that path, but it, it drove a lot of the early work that I was doing and still what I'm passionate about today. But I see a lot of people are interested in getting a PhD because they think that's the best way to become a doctor. And my always caution to them is just recognize you're signing up for a research degree. Are you really passionate about research? You willing to spend the next four or five years of your life focused on research? And if not, that's not the right pathway for you. You've got to be committed to research. Brilliant. And A for honesty on that. Um, I love it. I, and, you know, clearly it's influenced your growth journey. I, and just the fact that, like, you're, you've been with Sark since 2007. You've gone through a whole series of promotions. I mean, you've been there, what, 14, almost 15 years now. And nowadays, you know, we look at our field, many BCBAs in that same time frame might have had dozens of different jobs at different organizations. Um, like, what advice would you have for, for BCBAs who might be considering continuing their career, career progression with their current organization versus potentially starting out on their own? Well, let me, let me uh, answer. So it, it's, I'm celebrating my 15th anniversary as we're recording this uh, right now at SARC, right? It's the first six and a half is clinical director and the last eight and a half as, uh, as president and CEO. And in terms of why I've been in one place that entire time when so many others moved around, it was one answer to that, and that is the people that I work with. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, you know, even going back to your question, what to consider, uh, culture. I can't, I can't emphasize it enough. The culture of the organization. I work at an organization that is so committed to outcomes for people with autism and to building more inclusive and supportive communities, and I want to be a part of that. I'm, I'm a part of an organization that believes in advancing research as much as we do in uh, engaging our clinical services. You don't find that in a lot of places. Mm -mm. I'm involved in an organization that's looking across the entire lifespan. Most people just focus on little kids. Yep. And I'm involved with an organization that cares about changing their community, not just changing the behaviors and skills of people with autism. You combine all that together with a people that are so committed to doing that and are good people to be around. That's mm -hmm. what's kept me at SARC all this time is the people that work at SARC, the people we attract, and that we are retained, hands down, is what does it for me. Um, and in terms of you know what what advice I give, you know number one is find that culture. And if you can't mm -hmm. find it in the organization, that would be a reason to me to go build it somewhere else. But do it very intentionally. Mm -hmm. um, another is um, always be learning, um, and not just about ABA, right? So mm -hmm. I got to tell you, as a as a leader at Sark, when I was first hired as CEO as a clinician, I remember thinking. This is the first job I've ever taken where there is a legitimate chance that I could be fired. Like this job mm. is bigger than me. I don't know everything about how to be a president and CEO. I don't know how to run a board and how to fundraise. I am going to have to really learn a lot to be successful. But I am grateful for that opportunity because it has kept me learning. I've been doing it eight and a half years and I still feel like a bit of an imposter and then I need to keep learning and it drives my learning. So keep learning and not just about ABA. I spent a lot of time reading business and business books. I'm a huge Jim Collins fan. Mm. Uh, you and I have shared a, a great uh, affinity for lots of different business books and talked about them. 
that that really drives me. And then the last thing or last two things I tell you, uh, there's a guy out of uh, Seattle named Michael Fabrizio, very, very famous in the ABA world. There's a great program called Organization for Learning in Seattle. I saw him do a presentation about building an ABA business. He told me two things that stuck with me. Number one, if you're going to start your own business, don't just do it with your friend who's a clinician like you. Be considering of like, what skill set do you not have? Mm. And partner with that person to start your business, right? So I'm a great clinician and I'm terrible at accounting. <laughs> Go find the best accountant you can and start your business with accounting. And the same thing, the other thing he said is also as you're designing your business on the front end, start to plan how your business will end. And I always thought that was really great advice because lots of things end real messy and having mm -hmm. that figured out at the front end, I think is good too. Last thing I'll say about this, we are in a very different world than when you and I got in the field, mm -hmm. right? When I got to Sark, you know, Sark was kind of the only game in town. Maybe there was a few others that were still here. And in fact, there was, but man, there's lots of places to get autism treatment now. And we know that private equity is playing an increasingly big role. Mm -hmm. And the concerns I have with private equity, and I don't mean to paint them with a broad brush, but at the end of the day, their job is to increase value and sell within three to seven years. Mm -hmm. And so I think you just have to, if you're going to start your own business, you have to understand what sacrifices are you going to make for profitability and potential mm -hmm. for valuation uh, that, that would go against maybe why you got in the field in the first place. It's not impossible to be a, a, a good for-profit ABA business. It's not impossible to be a private equity-backed for-profit business. But I think as a leader, you have got to make sure that the reason you got in the business to drive outcomes for people with autism never gets sacrificed. Amen to that. Amen. And amen twice on Tuesdays. <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> I, I, I want to like double click on um, that idea of nonprofit. Sark's a nonprofit. Right. And I know you have a very long yeah. and your board have a very long time span as you think about planning and, and what you want to achieve over the coming years, I mean, decades. Um, so, you know, as a CEO of a nonprofit, like what do you get to do that for profit CEOs don't get yeah. to do? And what don't you get to do? Because you're CEO of a nonprofit. Yeah. Great. What's it's a great it's a great question. So, you know, one thing is I would tell you, you know, there are differences between being a for-profit and a non-profit, right? And I'll, I'll cover a couple of those for you. But at the end of the day, whether you're a for-profit or non-profit, you are running a business and you need business skills and business leadership and you have to think about how you run a business. Non-profit is a, is a horrible uh, uh, name for what we do because yeah. the reality of it is if Sark doesn't profit, we're out of business and we're helping no one. We absolutely have to profit. Mm -hmm. Right. But what it also means is we're not distributing those profits among shareholders. It all gets invested back into the mission. Mm -hmm. So um, so a couple of the things I don't have to pay taxes. That's a good one. Right. <laughs> and so in terms of like building out our impact, the money that we would spend on taxes, we can really invest back in the mission. I love that. Right. We got to do mm -hmm. payroll taxes. But, you know, beyond that, we're not paying taxes like a for profit organization. Um, uh, I don't have to be conflicted ever between profits and outcomes. Our bottom line at Sark is outcomes for people we serve. Doesn't mean that profitability is not important, but it will never be the driver of our approach and our decision making. Outcomes for people with autism will. So I don't ever have to be conflicted between those. In terms of what I do get to do as a nonprofit leader, I get to focus all of my energy on outcomes being the bottom line mm. for, the, for the people that we serve. I get to be totally authentic about our purpose, vision, and mission. Right? I'm not trying to build up our valuation and sell the business and, and that's going to make me a lot of money one day. 
right? Like I get to be totally authentic about what we're trying to achieve and that's refreshing to me and, and, and my core values as an individual. Um, and I, and I, uh, I get to fundraise. And this is an interesting one because a lot of people would say, I have to fundraise and that's the least important part of, I gotta tell you, you know what fundraising is more than anything? It's, it's sharing your story and helping other mm -hmm. people understand why it's important. I am so committed and proud of the work that we do at Sark. Fundraising is a privilege to me. I spend a considerable amount of my time, maybe about half of my time, helping others in our community understand what we do at Sark, why it's important, why we're trying to achieve, and it is my honor and privilege to ask you to give money mm -hmm. to help support what we're doing. And so I, I think uh, you know that's one of those things I get to do, not I have to do. Uh, I, it, it, Jim Collins, coming back to your point there, in good to great, you know, there's he 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 referenced someone at one point and asked him, "Hey, should I run my for profit or my nonprofit like a for profit?" He says, "Hell no, run your nonprofit." like a great organization, the same way that a for-profit needs to run like a great organization. And to your point, yes, profit's important for everyone. And guess what? The outcomes, how you're achieving your mission, how you're telling your story, um, and building the strongest culture and team around you to do that, like that's something just great organizations yeah. do. That resonates. I, so what is, you know, if you were to think about like your vision for the future of autism care, um, what is that? And, and like, how do Sark's plans fit into that? And, and you know, how is, how have your latest strategic plan and processes, like, what are you doing right now to, to help get you there? Yeah. So, um, so we talked about our vision, people with autism meaningfully integrated into inclusive communities. I think if you're going to do strategic planning, you have to start with vision. You have to know where you're going and what you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, I think core values, uh, making sure that those are, are adequately defined and purposeful and intentful and they, they are living, breathing, they make, they're how you make decisions within your organization. Another Jim Collins thing that he talks about is the, you know, the idea of there are certain things, uh, it's called preserve the core and stimulate progress. Mm. Preserve the core as your vision and your core values. Those never change. Those are forever mm. there, right? They're never going to change no matter what happens. Stimulate progress, everything else can change, right? So I think that those, keeping those, you've got to get the vision and core values right. And then the next step for us is to, is to select what we call a core target. Jim Collins would call it a BHAG, a big, mm -hmm. hairy, audacious goal. And for SARC, we have a, 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 a core target or a BHAG of by 2030, SARC will become a statewide organization that puts effective services within reach of every Arizonan. And that's our big goal that we're after to achieve. And, um, and that drives lots of our decision-making and our strategic planning. Very intentionally, notice that it does not say Sark provides effective services for every Arizonan. Hmm. That, that's by design and with intentionality. We know we can't do it alone. And so within our, 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 our core target, we have five strategic anchors. Each one of those is, is driving towards that core target, which helps advance our, our vision. And so I'll just give you a couple of examples. So a big one for us right now is going to be expansion. So we right now, mm. we just opened our fourth campus uh, in uh, South Scottsdale. Uh, it's anchored by a Sark Community School, one of those inclusive preschools mm -hmm. where Benson went. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do six more of those by 2030, each of them anchored by one of those inclusive preschools, the community school. But those 10 locations in Arizona alone are not going to put effective services within reach of every Arizona. We got to have other strategies. So public policy, 
Arizona was the fourth state in the country to have an autism insurance mandate. Now all 50 do. It has changed the mm. game in terms of access to services. I don't know that the SARC has done anything as significant in its 25 years as it has mm. as, as participate and lead in the effort to pass that bill. Public policy changes really help put effective services within reach. Partnerships. So uh, we know we can't do it alone. We've got to partner with other organizations. Uh, Jonathan, as you know, we just launched a new event in October called Yes Day for Autism. Mm -hmm. And uh, and this was uh, an event that we partnered with about 50 different autism organizations, 40 of which are nonprofit providing autism services. And this is nobody in the nonprofit world does this, right? We said to those 40 organizations, you can fundraise in our platform. Right? You don't have to plan the event. You don't have to get sponsors. You don't have to pay a dime for the cost of putting on an event. Just drive people to the website, donate to your team, and half that money is coming right back to your organization. Right, So that's the way we're helping others put effective services within reach. We have to build that inclusive community that I talked about earlier. And then I think the other big thing for us is culture, culture, culture. We can't do mm. any of this with our strategic plan if we're not a great place to work. In terms of the future of autism services, I think more focus on adults with autism, right? We've mm -hmm. got to be focused on that next, on, on these people that, yep. you know, we know that children with autism become adults with autism. Um, we need to focus more on being inclusive of self-advocates. So I'm happy mm -hmm. to talk more about this if you're interested, but we just launched a self-advocate advisory board at SARC, uh, made mm -hmm. up of 10 people on the spectrum who advise SARC on our programs, our research, our education and training and our marketing and communications to make sure that they have a seat at the table. The future of autism has got to be including people with autism as key stakeholders in how we advance our vision and mission. Um, and I think that's a really critical component uh, to what we're doing. Uh, you know what? And I, oh, I see you and Sark like live all of these. I know Ascend and, and, and Sark are they? Arizona Diagnostician Network, you all always lean into collaboration and ways that you can um, uh, leverage the community and different partners to, to accomplish your goals. You know, Jonathan, I want to give you one other quick thing about strategic planning that you have there. I, uh, I think a lot of people focus on the plan and the strategy and don't focus enough time on the execution. And two great tools that I would recommend for that. So one is a great book and there's a podcast out there called Four Disciplines of Execution. They kind of mm. make that point, which is focus only on strategy and not on execution. The real work is done on the execution. You have to have Absolutely. the strategy, but you have to execute. Absolutely. I love Four Disciplines of Execution. And we use a system called EOS or the Entrepreneurial mm -hmm. Operating System, which is equally about vision and then traction. Traction is the execution mm -hmm. part. And, uh, and, and that is our, you know, our, uh, how we look at what we do every week, every month, every quarter, how we plan out the, our three-year picture and our 10-year core target. So I, I think that's the other thing here. Strategic planning is great. Execution planning is critical to achieving your strategy. You're living the always be learning that you described earlier. And I'm going to drop yeah. in the show notes the four disciplines of execution, EOS, and then uh, references to a couple of Jim Collins books. Um, all right, so so last question before we get to, uh, to to hot take. What's one thing every ABA business owner and leader should start doing? That's one, one thing they should stop doing. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. So the start is you just actually touched on it. Start always learning, right? Always be a consumer of information. If you're running a business, it should be about the business side. If you're a behavior analyst, you're a BCBA, you're working in the field, keep learning not just about behavior analysis, 
But remember, there's things like child and adult development. Uh, there's stuff outside of our field to be learning about. And it even doesn't have to be anything about our field. Just be curious. Be curious mm. and keep learning, I think, is a key piece for us. And remember what I said earlier, that, that sort of imposter syndrome that I talked about or that fear that I can legitimately has driven my learning. And I'm grateful for that. So always, always, like, if you're not always learning, start always learning. Be reading, be curious, talk to other people that have knowledge and you don't ask lots of questions, try to mm. learn from others. The stop doing, we got to stop the ABA arrogance in our field. Um, our field is full of it and it's interesting, you know, in, in a field that we want so badly for others to adopt, we spend a lot of time making other people who don't do ABA feel badly about not doing ABA. And no one that feels badly about not doing ABA is suddenly going to wake up one day and go, I want to do ABA now. We need successive approximations. We need to help people be reinforced for their successive attempts to try out behavior analytic practice and engage in what we're doing. But there's a lot of arrogance in our field. We like to throw the evidence-based practice stuff at people all the time. We, got, we like to make people feel that if they're not doing ABA, it's not good at all. And look, you know, we may, we may disagree with the practices of others. We may think that, hey, that doesn't have enough scientific evidence. But we are not doing ourselves a service uh, by making people feel badly about what they're doing. All we're doing is, is actually increasing the resistance to ABA because now they're not just resisting ABA. They're resisting the people who do ABA, mm. and that's worse. So we, we, need to, we need to have some humility about what we're doing. You know, you know this is, may come as a surprise to some people, but behavior analysts don't know anything, everything. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we have, an, uh, we have a huge opportunity. I am a firm believer that behavior analysis could change the world, but I think a lot of times we're getting in our own way. So if you're an ABA and you're an ABA leader, come at the practice, come at the field, come at your work with a certain level of humility about the work we do. And let's put the arrogance aside and really start to work with others to advance our science. Mm, spoken like Yoda. Genius. Danny, where can people find you and Sark online and on social media? Yeah, so the, the, the biggest thing would be uh, autismcenter.org. That is our uh, website. So it's, uh, uh, I think we own Sark.org too, but autismcenter.org is, is, uh, is the easiest place to go. And, and Sark has a, um, you know, a YouTube channel and a Facebook page and Instagram, and Twitter. I'm actually not a social media person. This is one of the things in my life that uh, I have I have not gotten into, and I'm very glad about it because it would be a huge time suck for me. And so I'm glad. So you can't really find me other than on on LinkedIn, and I'm not even that uh, active. Uh, you, Jonathan, by the other way, are very active on social media. I see lots of uh, videos. Every in fact, every once in a while, when I see the stuff you post, I'm thinking maybe I need to get into social media, but. For now, I, I've got an obsessive personality, and that's not a good mix for, for social media. But Sark <laughs> has all the platforms you can search Sark for to be able to find it. Uh, love it. All right. So are you ready for the hot take rapid fire questions, Danny? You got it. Sure. Here we go. You're on your deathbed. What's the one thing you want to be remembered for? Yeah, I can't, I can't pick one thing, so I'm going to break your rule here. But uh, <laughs> I want to be remembered for being a great husband, a great father, a great son, a great friend, and somebody who really helped build a better community for my family and friends to live in. Hmm. What's your most important self-care practice? I spend a lot of time on this. Um, you know, I, uh, pretty much daily, I, uh, I, I meditate. I, uh, I do a journal called a five-minute journal. And I exercise just about every day. But I will tell you that the one that I am focused on right now more than anything else is sleep. 
I, I think it is a huge uh, superpower. I'm finding ways and using data to figure out how to get better sleep, how to get deeper sleep, how to get more meaningful sleep. And um, I'm really seeing the difference. I, I uh, when I'm focused on that, I see I tend to be much better uh, throughout the rest of my day. So I'm now, there used to be a time in my life where I was like, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and today, uh, today I'm, I'm trying to think about how do I maximize? I've always been a good sleeper. I need the quality and length of my mm. sleep to be more and I'm better when that happens. There's so much research that's been coming out around the importance of sleep to everything, immune system, I mean, I, everything else. All right. If you could cancel all meetings and skip all your responsibilities for a day, how would you spend the day? Uh, number one, I would do something active. Uh, so I gave up surfing when I left Santa Barbara. I missed that, but I'm not that good at it anymore. So maybe I'd go <laughs> surfing. If I'm in Arizona, I'm probably, I'm probably playing golf. Never been really good at golf, but enjoy being out. So I wanted to be doing something active outside. I would have a great meal. I'm a huge foodie. I love great food. So I'd have a great meal and I'd, uh, and I'd see some kind of live music and I got a lot of favorites, but, uh, I've, I've found that uh, some of my happiest moments are, are when I'm uh, getting to watch live music. Nice. And I know we share a, a mutual love for Dave Matthews Band. Um, spoiler alert, listeners. Um, best Beatles song yes. ever? <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny. I'm not a huge Beatles fan. I, I respect them and their catalog. But I, so I, I, I'm going to go with Hey Jude. Nice. But I always tell people when I ask the Beatles questions, uh, uh, I'm always, yeah, I was like saying, I'm more of a Rolling Stones fan. I like the Rolling Stones better than Beatles. Nice. If you could give your 18 year old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Huh? So I would say, you know, I was raised in a family that has been all about education, uh, as a, as a sort of a means to an end. And I value that because I think that's where a lot of my focus on continual learning and curiosity comes from. I've always valued education. Um, but I think what I would tell myself at the 18 is that there are other ways to be able to achieve goals um, beyond education that you'd want to be paying more attention to uh, as well. So I would say learn more about business, learn mm -hmm. and to think like an entrepreneur. I'm in a, a, an outstanding uh, business group called YPO or Young Presidents mm -hmm. Organization, and I am surrounded by unbelievable business leaders and entrepreneurs who have really challenged the way that I think and how I think and inspired uh, how business can be a force for good. And I, uh, I would have told myself at 18, learn more about how to do that because business, if done properly, really can be a force for good, mm, for once, profit or nonprofit. Once again, to always be learning. All right, finally, Danny, you can only wear one style of footwear for the rest of your life. Which would it be? Uh, this is this is an easy one for me. Rainbow flip-flops. Yes! My, uh, my Santa Barbara days. <laughs> And uh, they, I think they're the most comfortable flip-flops. And uh, when my wife and I moved to Arizona, we made a commitment. We said, if we're leaving Santa Barbara, we will, uh, we will only move to a place where you could wear flip-flops year-round. And uh, Phoenix checked that box. And, you know, year-round here in Phoenix, you can wear your rainbow flip-flops. <laughs> that is unbelievable. And on that note, Danny, thank you so much. This has been an honor and pleasure. I've had a blast. Absolutely. Thanks so much, John. Good to be with you. And uh, keep up all the good work that you're doing with Ascend. And congratulations on this podcast. It's a pleasure to be a part of it. Thanks for listening to Building Better Businesses in ABA podcast. Stay tuned for our next exciting episode. In the meantime, please like, subscribe, share, and comment. We value your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on social media at elementrcm.ai.